Well, hey, let's uh, let's dive in uh, this this morning. Uh, first, I do want to say, guys, I want to encourage you to be here uh, this week for our just our men's night. It's one of those things moving forward that this is going to be a launch. This is going to be a launch time, right? It's going to be a launching into the men for the year. And here's the thing: there are different things we have going on this year. But I would say, this, I want I want you all to hear this just very quickly. That when we think about um, when we think about being men, men by nature live very isolated lives. We live, and I don't mean isolated as in, I mean isolated from other men is what I usually mean. Because you're, I mean, you know you're definitely not isolated from your wife, and you're definitely not isolated from your kids, because I don't know about you, but I am my child's greatest playmate, right? Like, I am the most fun, I am the jungle gym, I am everything to them, right? So I'm not isolated from them, but it's very easy in my life to be isolated from other men, and I will say this, uh, just from my own life experience, that, that if you were isolated from other men who were actually speaking into your life, who actually understand what you're going through and can basically call you a liar when you're lying about stuff. We would call it BSing, but it's church. You shouldn't say that term. That's really what you're doing. I want you to recognize the greatest call in your life, apart from loving Jesus and loving your wife and your kids, is to be in relationship specifically with other men, not women, because that would be awkward and unhealthy, okay, right? Your best friend can't be a woman outside of your wife, but other men who are coming alongside of you, who are calling you out, who are challenging you, who are pressing you, who are speaking into your life. Your wife is not enough, okay? Your wife is not enough. Let me just tell you a story. We watched this show the other night. And this web, this they, they they came on talking about this website, almost like a like a like an escort type service. And they were talking about it online. And my and Randall looked at me. She said, she said, you better not ever look at that website. And I said, babe, I never would. And she said this. And this was so this was so it's a, such a this was a beautiful just most one of those beautiful things that ever happened in our conversation about accountability. She said, and if you do, you better be talking to your accountability group about it. And all of a sudden, I recognized for her that that accountability group, that group of men, it is, it is something that she leans on for herself for me. And I thought that is what it's all about, that she sees a group of guys that are coming alongside of me every week and basically making sure I keep my pants up, my zipper zipped, right, and not look at anything stupid or do anything I should not do. And if I do, they're calling me out. So that's what we're talking about. So when we have our men's night and all this kind of stuff, it's not just so we can hang out and like talk about guy stuff. No, it's because we recognize the power of being in relationship with other men. Because I don't know about you, I've watched too many pastors do those types of things and completely wreck a ministry, wreck their families, and wreck everything. And by God's grace, that will never happen. And part, and part of it is these men that I'm intentionally choosing to be in relationship every week. Okay? You can ask them. It's Rob Lilly, Ed Fortier, and Darren Glodja. Rob sitting over here. Wave your hand, Rob. There you go. So we're in every Friday morning at 7.15-ish, depending on traffic and time, right? We're there. So anyway, all right, so I just throw that out to you. That's part of our time with our men. And as we move forward, things we're going to be talking about even in the next several weeks to really open that door for you to be in those relationships. Okay, well, let's dive in. So we've been talking uh, for the last couple of weeks uh, about, and we named it last week, about being people who don't just live ordinary real lives, but last week we said our call, our, the potential that we have to live extraordinary real lives. And all of us understand what real life is, right? We have our real life, it's our real, the, the things that we do every day, it's kind of this ordinary, everyday, in and out type life. And last week we talked about this guy, Peter, most of you have heard of Peter, one of the apostles, who was living an ordinary real life. He was an ordinary, he was just an average businessman, fisherman, with a, coming from a lower income family. He was married, he had a mother-in-law, right? Mate, we don't know if he had kids or not, right? But somewhere in the mix, probably somewhere along the way that happened, we don't know for sure, but he was living his ordinary, real life, working the nights, the night shift as a fisherman, right? He's just living his ordinary, real life like every single one of us until something happened. Jesus 
invaded his space, and all of a sudden, he went from having this ordinary potential to a Jesus-sized potential. When Jesus saw him, he didn't just see an ordinary real life, he saw the potential of living an extraordinary real life. We said last week, Four years later, the span of high school, people are laying in his shadows in hopes of being healed. That is a massive shift from an ordinary real life to an extraordinary real life. And so we said last week that our potential, listen, this is crazy, right? You have to believe this, that if if Jesus truly lives inside of us as followers of Jesus, which is what we believe, then our potential in life is defined by Jesus' potential in his life. Because if he lives inside of us, then our potential is now defined by his potential. And we can all say his potential is unlimited. Therefore, our potential in Christ is unlimited also. And so when he looks at us, and this is the beautiful thing we said about having a heavenly father like Jesus, that, that if he is truly our heavenly father who is parenting us 24-7 every day of our life, he just he does not just define us by the brokenness and the sin and all the stuff that we live in right now and right now today but he's saying oh no 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 i'm defining you by who you're becoming because i see you now remember i sang this a little bit i see you now and i see you in the future and you look much bigger there than you do right now i see you now and i see you in the future you look much bigger there than you do right now so we said then that our potential then defines even how jesus looks at us and so if that's the case then that we're that we're on this journey then to not just an ordinary real life but to an extraordinary real life and it's modeled a little bit for us by the life of Peter. And so my question before we dive in a little bit further this morning is simply this and I want you all to hear this and some of you who have not been here this is your first week here you've not heard the the previous two weeks so I want to encourage you to listen to the podcast but but the thing I want to ask each of you who have been here in processing this, it's, it's this. I've invited you and said that in 2014, we have committed at Vintage to help lead you to your extraordinary real life defined by the potential of Jesus in you. That's our goal, right? Our commitment to you is to help you along in that journey because I know, like myself, I can't get there by myself. It's really hard. I need someone to come alongside of me. I need brothers and sisters of the body of Christ and the church to come alongside of me. So we're committing to do that. But my question is this. Do you want to go? Do you want to go? That's the question we begin with. Do you want to go on this journey with us? And I want to offer that to you because I don't know about you in life, but there are lots of things that arise and opportunities that arise that people get really excited about immediately. Oh, yeah, yeah, my gosh, it's be so great, right? Yeah, we're going to have a party at your house. Yeah, we want to be there, right? And then you have the party and like half of those people who were so excited are there and you're like, what happened to the other half, right? Where did they go? They were so excited, but they're not here. And so the same is true. You read through Scripture I mean, that's one of the great tragedies. Read the New Testament sometimes, read between the lines, and make sure, make sure you realize it's real people who are telling the story with real feelings and real emotions. Listen to Paul, listen to Peter, talking about the ones who fell away. The ones who were walking with them, who decided to go somewhere other routes. Right? They were so excited. They embraced the message of Jesus with great excitement and great passion. You see it in the story of the soils, don't you, that Jesus says. Those on rocky soil, those on in thorny soil, those who get burned by the sun, right? They all start out in the same place excited, but they don't quite continue on the journey. So I just want to say to you, I don't want to expect that all of you want to go on the journey to your extraordinary real life. Why? Because if you've ever read your Bible, you know that when you follow Jesus, it's difficult, it's sacrificial, it requires a death, Right. It requires a death. And so in that death, it's a matter of we're dying to selfishness. 
And we're dying to our own personal rights to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And we're saying, yes, the direction that Jesus wants to go. So I want to go ahead and just be honest with you as we begin the journey to say it's going to cost you everything. It's not going to be about you. It's going to be about what Jesus thinks about. And so we have this invitation, right, to the extraordinary real life. It's extraordinary real life. But, but I want you to recognize that you, listen, you don't, this is, this is huge. No one else, nor yourself, listen to this, this is huge. This goes against everything the American culture teaches about your own life, okay? You, nor no one, no one else, nor you get to define for your, for you what your extraordinary life looks like. I want you to hear me say that again. Neither you nor anyone else gets to define what your extraordinary and extraordinary life looks like. So you don't get to sit down. Like when I say this, you don't get to go, oh, yeah, and you paint a picture of what your extraordinary real life looks like, and you begin to go that direction because the question is, did you ask Father what he thought about the extraordinary real life that you've created for yourself? You see, one of the things I was reading, I was reading, there's a guy named Walter Brueggemann. Walter, I'm going I'm I'm to quote him several times this morning. Walter Brueggemann is one of those guys who's usually over most of our heads. He's one of the premier, top Old Testament theologians who are living today. Right? He wrote a book called Prophetic Imagination. The first two pages blow your mind. Right? It's, it's a really hard read. If you ever get a chance, read it. Prophetic Imagination, Walter Brueggemann. But he comes in and he, and he, and he, and he does this beautiful picture of painting He's of, of painting this, this comparison between the American evangelical church today, which is what all of you are if you were here, and the uh, Jewish Christian church of the New Testament. He said, in the American culture, we tell our children, you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. And we mean it with the best of intention, right? You can be all that you can be, be whatever you want to be, right? And we tell our children that, and we get into this open slate before them. But the, the Jewish, the Jewish Christian church never would have said that. What they would have said is, well, you have a responsibility to be a part of the church of Christ. And your responsibility is to listen to him to see what he has for your extraordinary real life. You don't get to define it. He gets to define it for you. In fact, the only place where you can ultimately fulfill God's potential for you is on the track that he has created for you in the world in which you're living. And so what I'm getting at is this. The extraordinary real life is probably not something right now. Maybe you can because you've already prayed and heard from the Lord, right? But for many of us, it's one of those things that we say, all right, Jesus, I'm an open slate. You paint, you're right. I'm an open canvas. You paint the picture of what my extraordinary real life looks like, and I will follow you into it. Rather than sit down and tell you what I want from you, which is what we hear from most churches, right? You give God this, and he'll give you what you want, Instead of saying, God, I'm going to be obedient to you and follow you where you are calling. And here's the beautiful thing about it. So the extraordinary real life, right? It may be something grandiose, overwhelming, and big picture that our culture defines as something huge, right? We literally may, we may be the one who ends world hunger. We literally may be the one who finds a way to get clean drinking water to every single child in the world. We may be the one that God gives wisdom to cure cancer as a gift of the Holy Spirit and our wisdom, right? That may be us. We may be the one who is friends with the president and telling how stupid he is and decisions he's making by God's grace, right? We may be the one literally who is being called to go to Africa and to save nations who've never heard the gospel of Jesus, right? This is the extraordinary, like the shadow healing people that we think about. And God, that would be huge. Why? Because we want to be the person who does such amazing things, right? And so often in that extraordinary, it usually makes people look at us and think about how great we are and tell stories about us. But what about the extraordinary that is defined by God 
in reaching the neighbor next to you who no one else in the world could ever reach because you're the only one who has access to their life. And God says, that's the extraordinary thing I've called you to for the next five years. That's how I define extraordinary for you. And it's exactly equal to the person ending world hunger in my mind. You see, we create, unfortunately, these grandiose pictures in the church. Say, yes, God's purpose, God's calling, God's extraordinary for you. And we tell stories of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. Instead of telling the stories of that grandma who couldn't walk and could never leave her house in her blindness, but got on her knees for four hours a day and just cried out to God. And God says that is extraordinary because that's what I've enabled her to do. So do you see what I'm getting at? I want to help lead you for the next year. Probably, honestly, let's be honest. We're really kind of, we're not just kind of launching you into the rest of your life is what we're doing, right? But our commitment for this year is to lead you to an extraordinary real life that you don't have to define for yourself. But you get to let God define for you. And whatever he defines for you is the thing that will ultimately meet the greatest need that you feel aching in your heart. We want God to lead us to the extraordinary real life that he designs, he has created for us. So my question for you, with this in mind, and hear this, do you ache for the extraordinary? Do you ache for this level of extraordinary real life inside of you? So if I'm completely honest with you from my own life, it's not uncommon for me to feel the ache of the thing that I am not and experience a deep longing for it. Does that make sense? Like, like in my life, I'm sitting there in this moment and I'm like, oh, you know what I mean by ache? That's, that's something inside of you that recognizes I'm here, but I want something, right? I want something I can't quite put my finger on sometimes. There's just this like, oh, longing inside of me. I would call it a holy discontent. Like I'm content with how I love Jesus and how he loves me, but I've tasted of him, so I want more of him. That's the paradox of Christianity. The more I eat of him and the more I drink of him, the more hungry and thirsty I become for more of him right? And so I live with this ache and this discontent of like, oh God, there's something more that I want of you. There's something I can't quite put my finger on. God, there's this longing that I have inside of me for something more than I am. It's an ache. I can't quite put my finger on it, but God, I want you. I want something. I have something more. I'm going to show a clip from, from the Matrix here in a second, but in the Matrix you had the story of, of Neo, right? So this, is, this, is, this is like movie of my generation, right? This is story of the Matrix. You have Neo, this boring computer programmer. He lives his life under just these demonic fluorescent lights, you know what I'm talking about, right? He lives his life in the cubicle, and he, he lives with the ache that there's something out there beyond what he knows. He's living this life, but there has to be more to the life that he's living. He has this he has this take this ache, this thing, right? And when I saw this movie for the very first time, I remember watching it, and this one scene I'm about to show you, it may not mean anything to you, but I think it creates a language for us, that, that when I heard it, I'm like, oh, God, this names the ache. This names the ache inside of me. I want to go ahead and let you know there's, there's going to be the word hell in here, okay? He's going to say, what the hell, in a second. Don't freak out. Get beyond that to see the clip or what it's meaning, okay? So go ahead and play that clip, and I want you to just begin to see this ache that may be inside of Neo in this scene right here.
So in this scene, you had this guy, Neo, right? He's living this life. And he has this ache inside of him. And I love that line. It says, you've been down that road. You see, when I talk about the ache, that's what I mean. That there's this ordinary life that we've been living that they're really kind of defined by this, I've been there, I've done that. There's just this, oh, now there's something more. And there's that tension, isn't there? He has that moment, kind of that crisis moment, that moment of, of crossroad. Either, either I trust and go down a path that I don't completely have understanding about, I completely go down this path that, that someone else is leading me down that I have no control of, I have no understanding, right? He goes on to meet Morpheus and he talks about there's the rabbit hole he has to dive into and who knows where it lands, right? There's this whole moment. And he looks down and he sees this journey that he's been down before. Because there's an ache of something more than what he's known. We see the same type of, type of ache. It's named for us in Psalm 42. Whoever the writer of Psalm 42 is, they come. It's probably very familiar. You can turn your Bibles or just watch it on the screen. But it says this in Psalm 42, starting in verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Do you see the language? Listen, some of you read this and you can't identify, can you? He's sitting there saying, I'm living my life. And I said, like, as a deer who's just jumping around, is longing to find water, right? Who's just dying and just panting, right? Panting for water. They're going, they find it like, yes, this is what I've been longing for. I've been aching to find my soul. My soul pants for living water, right? When, oh God, when can I meet with you? There's this ache, this longing, this desire that's, that's, that's literally that's, that's encompassing everything that they're experiencing, everything that they are feeling, everything that they are longing for. There is an ache, there is a longing, there's a discontent, there's this thing of saying, God, oh, without more of you, right? Without your presence, without you in my life, God, without you leading me, God, oh, I'm so thirsty, I'm so hungry. There's an ache defining their life. There's an ache defining the situation for them. You know, when I think about this holy discontent, just to kind of create an analogy I think we can all identify with that's not very holy, but, but it's, in that like a, it's like we know when you, about 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, you've already had dinner. And in that moment, all of a sudden, you're like, I'm hungry. Right? I'm hungry. And, and, you, and the person sitting with you go, what are you hungry for? And what do you say? I don't know. Right? You sit there and say, I, I don't know. And you get up and you do the whole thing your parents told you not to do. You open the refrigerator because you pay the bills now, right? You open that door and you look inside. You can do this now because you're an adult, right? You look inside and you survey. Nope, nope. You're looking for the thing you can't name that will fill, fulfill the craving that you have inside of you, right? And you're just looking going, nope, nope, nope. And then what do you, you move from there to the pantry, right? And you go, and then, you, and then you start opening up doors. You know there's no food in, right? But this hopefully something that's there. I don't know what it is, right? But you have this longing. You have this craving. You can't quite put your finger on it, but you know that when you find it, it will satisfy you. Oh, how my soul pants for God, for the living God. Oh, there's a craving that only he can fill. When can he fill it? When can I find you? When can I get with you, God? Last week we told the story of Peter, right? Peter's being called to Jesus and to follow Jesus. And, and we read in Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, yeah, Luke chapter 5, we see the story. And we remember he says, Jesus, cast your nets on this side of the boat into the deep. And we talked about that a little bit. And he brought this great catch. And we pick it up here in verse 8, which we read last week, 8 to 11. It says, when Simon Peter saw the great catch, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. They left everything and followed him. At least I love that in verse 11, right? They literally, they left 
everything. They pulled their boats on shore. They dropped everything they were doing, and they followed Jesus. Honestly, I love Mark. Mark's more succinct. He tells us that Peter, James, and John immediately left their nets, and they followed him. Like, all of us recognize, reading between the lines here, that there was an eagerness that obviously marked the life of Peter, James, and John, right? There was an eagerness for something, right? Because because no one just ups and leaves their livelihood unless there is something burning inside of them, some sort of ache for more, for something different, an ache that they have that immediately was fulfilled when Jesus said, follow me and I will make you a fishers of men. And all of a sudden, with Peter standing at the fridge of his life saying, oh, this isn't satisfying, this isn't satisfying, Jesus says, drop everything and follow me. He goes, that's it. Because no one in their right mind drops everything that they're doing in the moment unless it's the thing that answers the very ache of a prayer that they have been praying and they know it and they follow. You see, the, the, the thing about Peter is that Peter had the ache, I believe, of the extraordinary that he couldn't put his finger on until Jesus named it, leave everything, follow me, and then he gives them a vision of what the rest of his life's going to look like, but I will make you as one who fishes for men for the rest of your life. And Peter goes, that's the ache. You named it. My soul has been panting for this, for what, for you bringing this, right? For the extraordinary of God to be released in my life, and this is it. This is the answer to the ache. And so my question, my next question for each of us is this. Are we aware of the ache? Are we aware of the ache inside of us? Do you live, do you live life aware every day of this level of holy discontent? Do you live with an ache for something more, for something greater, for more of God, for more of his presence, for more of his love, for more of his calling, for more of the depth of his presence? Whatever it may be, do you live with the ache of more in your life? Not defining necessarily exactly what it is, but saying, God, I just ache and my soul pants. Is there a level of panting, right? Is there a level of ache? Is there a level of longing? Is there a level of holy discontent, God? I'm saying, not that God's not, you're not content with God now, but you say, God, I love you, but I want more more. The more I taste, the more I want, the more I drink, the more I thirst, right? Do we live with the ache and this holy discontent? Do we? And I live, listen, if my concern in talking with people is when they don't have some level of ache or longing, whatever phrase you may use, but there's, if there's no ache, if they just like, yeah, life's great. Really? Is there any, like a hunger or thirst for more? No, no, I'm good, man. I'm great. No, thanks for asking. No, I'm, I'm great. Got everything of God that I want. When that happens, there's a level of concern that I have inside of me because I believe, I believe that we are all fighting against the threat, and hear this, of spiritual amnesia. I believe that we are all living under the threat of spiritual amnesia. All of us understand amnesia. If, you're, if you've watched a lot of soap operas in your life, you know a lot more about amnesia than any of us in this room, okay? Listen, what am I, listen, when if I'm watching a television show and someone gets amnesia, I stop watching it, right? It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life, right? But all of us understand amnesia. Someone gets bonked on the head and then you see them in the hospital and they look perfectly fine, don't they? Have makeup on. They just have a bandage wrapped around their head. That's it, right? And you're like, seriously? And they wait Wake up and the doctor says, like that, that foreshadowing, well, they've had a pretty heavy hit on that head. And when they wake up, they may not remember anything, right? You're like, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, exactly, right? Dun, dun, dun. Right? Thank you, Timothy. There you go, right there. Days of our lives. Ah, winter. So, anyway, the whole diet. We used to watch it in high school, I'm saying. So, anyway, so this group of guys, it was really funny, okay? Anyway, so we turned it off when, like, Marlena got possessed by a demon. Seriously? So, anyway, the, you're like, what's he talking about? He watched soap operas? Oh, my gosh, right? No, but seriously, this whole, the, you know, this dynamic going down of amnesia. Someone forgets something. 
And the ha- what happens is they're living their life, something dramatic happens in a person's life, they, they're affecting their mind, right? And they go from no, listen, they go from knowing to forgetting. They go from knowing to forgetting, and in their forgetting, they have no, no memory of everything in life that has defined their past, their present, and their future. Do you see that? When spiritual amnesia hits, we forget who we are, who we were and where we came from, who we are today, and we forget where we are going. We are the same person, but we are incomplete, right? And I'm going to make the argument this morning that, that our ache, that part of us that longs for the extraordinary, is God's gift to us to keep us from falling into spiritual amnesia of forgetting where we came from and what God has done in the past of who we are and what he's doing today and the calling that he has for us in our future. And so the, the ache and the longing and the holy discontent is God's gift to us to keep us awakened to the, the threat of spiritual amnesia that would steal us and, and cause us to forget where we came from, who we are, and where we're going. And to say things like, no, I'm fine. Really? Walter Brueggemann, again, I've already named him, one of the great minds in Old Testament. He makes this comparison between the Israelites going into the promised land, and ultimately his comparison is the Church of America today. He's writing an article about the Church of America today and the threat that it's a, that's upon us as the as American church. And he does this great comparison, I thought. It's a real quick sentence. He does a paragraph about it, but this great comparison of the, of the, of the threat that, that, um, that faced the Israelites going into the promised land and then the church living in America today. And he, make, and he says this. He says, because the promised land, because the promised land is a land of extravagant abundance, it may seduce Israel into amnesia about its true character and mandate as the people of Yahweh or people of God. Israel may be tempted to embrace the alternative gods that occupy the good land. Let's read that again. Because the promised land is a land of extravagant abundance, right? That you can have your, you can have instant gratification with the beauty of what you find in it. It may seduce Israel into amnesia, but its true character and its true mandate as the people of Yahweh or God. Israel may be tempted to embrace the alternative gods that occupy the good land. The idea is simple. Because of the distraction of shiny things on earth, they may forget where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. Do you know the threat of shiny things? I see shiny things all the time. These shiny things in our life that, that, that woo us, that desire to satisfy us. We spent time, so we, we, listen, we, we talked about the gods that war for our hearts and, and war for our lives and our gods that war study. We talked, these are shiny things that are clamoring for our affection and for the place that only belongs to Jesus. And what Walter is saying here is saying, listen, when, when the, when the Israelites walked into the promised land or when the church lives its, its life in the context of a land of plenty in America that has advertisements every day on television telling, telling you how to be young, how to be beautiful, how to be smart, how to be rich, and they sell you all of these things, you can find Things that will gratify you will create a level of amnesia for your need for God and cause you to fall into a slumber. And so what I would say then, when my invitation into the journey is this, you can't go on this journey with us yet until you can answer for me, are you awakened to the ache and the longing for more? Because if you are awakened to that ache inside of you, then you have not completely fallen necessarily into spiritual amnesia. But if you are content where you are and living in this place of gratification, then I'm telling you honestly, you are living in a slumber. You are not awakened to the ache of the Holy Spirit longing for more of Jesus. And you need to first be awakened and then you can make an answer. 
And so I'm just doing you a favor. I'm not going to invite you on a journey you're going to fail on because I want to make sure first that you are awake, that you have a hunger, you have a thirst, you have an aching, you have a longing, you have a holy discontent that's defining your life and your spiritual walk. You love Jesus and you are content, but you want more of Him. I want to help waken, awaken you from your slumber and to make sure there's an ache and a longing for the extraordinary defined by the potential of Jesus inside of you. Do you pant and thirst for the living God? Do you stand at your spiritual refrigerator and say, God, there's something there. There's an ache of more. I can't put my finger on it, but I know that you know what it is. God, would you bring it? Peter, man, Peter was aching and longing in the wee hours of the morning of fishing and catching no fish. He's with James and John saying, I'm so tired of these guys. There's something out there. There's something more. Oh, God, if you would just name it. I believe Peter probably prayed Psalm 42, right? Anybody longing who reads Psalm 42? 42. He could quote Psalm 42 because he was a good, good Jewish man. He said, oh God, my soul no longer pants for the water these fish live in. God, I pant for the living waters. This, when can I go into the presence of God? And when Jesus showed up and Jesus met him, he says, Peter, here's the longing that you have. I've named it. He says, that's it. I've taken and I've eaten of the richest affair that you promised me. He ate it, and the longing, it was good for each of us this morning. Peter, Peter is, is this, this person for us who says, I did not live in amnesia, but I had the ache, God met me, and I walked with him. Not in perfection, because no human being is perfect, but I walked to the best of my ability. And I would say, Peter, we see it in his life, walked as one who never Never succumbed. He had moments of getting close, but never succumbed to the spiritual amnesia that the church has to fight against. And my question again for us, are you awakened? Are you awakened to the ache and the longing that only Jesus can fill? Are you aware of the potential that defines your life because the potential of Jesus Inside of you. If you look, if you go on in Peter's life, it's really neat. First and second Peter were written sometime between 62 and 64 AD during the reign of Nero. He says he's writing from Babylon because that represented Rome because the church was experiencing severe persecution. And so what we recognize then is that Luke chapter four, excuse me, Luke chapter four, five that we read earlier about Peter would have happened somewhere around the, the, the launch of Jesus' ministry around 30 AD, which basically means that what we're getting in First Peter 1, which we're about to read, was written over 30 years, 30 years after this initial awakening. And what I want you to read, we're gonna, as, as I read it, I want you to recognize, here is a man, here is a man who, who went from being an ordinary real-life fisherman to, to his shadow healing people, people, right? His shadow healing people, right? To him literally being the, really the, kind of the leader of the early church to the one who was scattered from Jerusalem and suffered severe persecution at the hands who were, at the hands of those who were opposed to Jesus. And so we have this guy who's living, who's lived the life. Right? He's the one we tell stories about. He's the one who's experienced this stuff. So he's one that we can look to for wisdom, that we can look to who says he's fought against spiritual amnesia. He wouldn't have used these words, but I think if he had been here today, he says, yeah, yeah, he'd give me the thumbs up. Yes, this is what I was fighting against in my own life and the life of the church, right? So I wanted you to read 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19 with me as if Peter is speaking to a church saying, hey, here are some things that you need to do to not fall into spiritual amnesia. Here we go, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So I want you to see the things that he's calling you to be or to do. So let's start over again. Read that verse again. The things he's calling you to be or the things that he is calling you to do, okay? Therefore, with minds that are be with minds that are alert, be alert and be fully sober. Do set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's person's work impartially, no favorites, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold uh, that you were redeemed from the empty way handed down to you from your ancestors, but with precious blood, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or a lamb without defect. So everyone press pause. Here's your homework this week. I want each of you to read First Peter 1, 13 through 19. I want you to read it. I want you to read the, per- the verses. You have to, like, you have to read verses three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten times trying to figure out what they're saying. Do you know that's a great practice and exercise of patience? Because all of a sudden when you get it, it like explodes in your mind when you finally get it. So I want you to take time this week and read this. It's only like seven verses, right? 13 through 9. It's only seven verses. Read them. Because what Peter's doing is he's saying, hey, do you want to know how not to fall into spiritual amnesia? And to stay awake to the ache, I'm going to coin that, awake to the ache, I like that, right? Say awake to the ache, then here's what I'm calling you to do and to be, right? The first one, I'm, just going, to, I'm going to read the list, you can write them down, I'm not going to go into each of them, okay? I'm just going to name them, and I'm going, to let, I'm going to ask you to invest into these things this week, okay? God, awaken them, show me, whatever it may be, okay? The first thing he calls us to be or to do is to be alert. To be alert, all of us know what it means to be alert. It means we're not sleeping, it means we're, it means we're, it means we're not distracted. Look, we're fighting to be alert. What am I being alert to? Well, I'm being alert to Jesus. I'm being alert to the things of God, right? Be alert to the work of the enemy. I want you to be alert. Looking around. Not like I'm, I'm freaking out. There are people like, oh my gosh, oh, like this. I'm not asking you to be like, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. Being alert. I mean, be alert. Oh, I'm alert. I'm looking at some scouring. I'm looking for the word the enemy means I can just, so I can crush his head, right? I'm being alert. I want you to be sober. I mean, listen, I've been around drunk people who have no idea what's going on. I take their, listen, when I was in college, I would take drunk people, I would tap them on their right shoulder because, because their keys were in their left hand. Alright? And I'd be like this, and I would grab their keys, and I'd go, what happened to my keys, man? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe let's find them in the car. You sit in the passenger seat. I'll sit in the driver's seat and see if I can find them, right? Like, okay, that sounds great, man. Oh, thanks, dude, right? I love you, man, right? Because they were being, I'm sober, completely sober, designated driver. Why? Because I'm alert and I'm sober to what's going on around me. And Peter's saying, be sober. Don't give your thing, self to the things. Listen, in Wizard of Oz, what happens? They get really, listen, they get really close to Oz, to their, the, the end of their travels, and they walk to the field of poppies. And listen, this close to the end. And they fall asleep. We don't want to be those who, toward, right at the end of the destination, we just, oh, this is so hard. I've just got to take a nap and fall asleep. We have to be alert. We have to be sober. Jesus says, set your gaze on Jesus, right? That's kind of set your hope on verse 13. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you in Christ Jesus is revealed that it's coming. That's a really big verse, right? But the idea of hope, hope is something out in front of us. We live, listen, we set, hope is this. Everyone hear this. I set my assurance on the fact that what I am living my life for is worthwhile and Jesus will bring it to me, heaven. That I'm going to live with him eternally. I set my gaze on the hope, the assurance that Jesus, I'm not living my life, I'm not living my life for nothing. I'm actually living my life for eternity with him. And I set my gaze upon it and my gaze is set on eternity. Who cares what the enemy is going to bring from the side? It may hurt, but my gaze will always be on him. And though I may be literally physically dying, my gaze is set upon the life and the hope that I find in Jesus that he is for me, will never leave me, never forsake me. So I set my gaze upon him. And if I set my gaze upon him, no matter what hell brings at me, I will have the fruit of that gaze, which is, which is life, which is which is love, which is the joy, the peace, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right? We keep on going. Number four, we choose, he says, choose obedience, right? Be obedient as obedient children, right? I choose obedience. 
hear this, Eugene Peterson is not on the screen, but Eugene Peterson has a great quote about the journey of our life of discipleship. Right? What does that mean? The journey that we're all on to become like Jesus. He says it's this. You can write this down. It's four, it's five words. Long obedience in one direction. That's the life we live in pursuing Jesus. It's just long obedience in one direction. I mean, that's it, isn't it? I'm just, that's a long obedience, continual, never ending long obedience in one direction towards the gaze that I've set upon Jesus. I'm living this life, right? I'm choosing obedience, choosing obedience, right? We know the things that, that are clamoring for our attention of disobedience. I'm choosing obedience. He says, don't conform to evil. Listen, what are the evil things that are clamoring for your affection? That when you engage them, they literally cause you to shift. They, you don't, you're not quite as bright because you've been dirtied and soiled by the things that you've chosen. Each of you have evil things in your life pursuing you. Like, don't think that you're like, oh my gosh, I got this sin coming against me. I feel so alone. No, there are millions of people who are wrestling with the same sin that you are. Stop making a big deal about how great you are, that your sin's bigger than everybody else's. All evil is coming after all people, so just get over it and recognize we're all in the same boat. So get those people around you who can encourage you. And stop making a big deal of how big your sin is compared to everybody else's. Isn't that selfish to say how, how well, you never walked in my shoes. Well, you're right, but you're, let me tell you about my shoes. We all have shoes we're walking in. And the Holy Spirit can empower you to obedience, Right? So stop giving yourself the liberty to sin because your sin's so big. Number six, be holy. Do you recognize? Listen, listen. In, our, in the world between the ref, these reform the, these reform people and these uh, free will people, which is an argument that you're completely unaware of, but there's this theological tension. Does Jesus really mean here, right? In the scriptures, does it really mean he says, "Be holy as I'm holy." Does it really mean we can be holy? And so I'm living in the place of saying, well, he's never going to call me to something he won't empower me to do. So it would be unfair of God and unrighteous of him to call me to be holy if he's not going to actually empower me to be holy in, in, the, in, in earth, on earth. And we've got to wrestle with that. I go, whoa, really? Right? Then what does that mean? Well, why don't you take some time this week and figure it out? Right? Read about it. Read about what does it mean to be holy. You know, John Wesley would say that holiness is defined by us having perfect love for those that are around us, God and our neighbor. That holiness is defined by the way that I will perfectly love those who are, in earth, who are here in need of love and perfectly love God. So is holiness defined by our perfect love, our giving love sacrificially to those who are in need? It means to be set apart from something, from evil, from all this stuff. To be set apart for. Holiness is not defined by the things I don't do. It's holiness is defined by the things I do in obedience for him. Loving my neighbor, giving my life away. Just because you don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't sleep with people doesn't mean you're holy. I want to say, that's great you don't do those things, but are you loving your neighbor, giving your life away to the poor? Are you sacrificially living for every single person around you? That defines holiness. God's not going to say, I'm so, I'm so glad you stopped drinking. No, he's say, I want to know what you did in obedience to me sacrificially every day of your life. That defines holiness, right? Number seven, live, live as foreigners. Do you feel that disconnect with the unbeliever because you recognize how different you are from them? Not that you're better, but you can't live like them. He's saying that is the mark of someone who has an ache of holiness, the ache for more, the ache of the extraordinary, because they recognize they can't live their life as one who is part of this earth. They have to be strangers, pilgrims, foreigners living in a strange land. Why? Because we are eternal in nature. We live for eternity. We're not defined by the temporal. And temporal means temporary, as in your 80 years of life here. And so Peter basically comes and what I would say is this. I would I believe, because you usually write about what you, you, people usually write and talk about what they've experienced, right? They write a book because they have a knowledge and experience about something. My guess is that he struggled with being alert, struggled with being sober, struggled keeping his gaze on Jesus, struggled choosing obedience, struggled not conforming to evil. He struggled being holy, and he struggled living as a foreigner, But he says, this is the mark that I've learned over the last 32 years of walking with Jesus, of one who stays awake from spiritual amnesia. It began 
with the dropping of the nets. And it's here now. First Peter, he's really honestly preparing to be crucified upside down and suffering for Christ. And so, again, my question for you is you are on the journey. If you're on the journey, are you awakened to the ache? And if you are awakened to the ache, are you pursuing it? And are you living your life according to 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19? Listen, as we choose, listen, this is the beautiful thing. As we choose to be alert, then the Holy Spirit empowers it. As we choose to be sober, Jesus empowers us. We make, we make the decision to move forward, and then he empowers our steps moving forward. And so this morning, my question as we move forward is this. If you're on the journey, then are you willing this morning to pray and say, God, empower, I choose these things. I'm going to study them this week. I'm going to pray over them. I'm going to meditate on these things. And as I meditate on them, then, God, I'm asking for your grace, your ability, your power to then begin to launch into alertness, into sobriety, upon gazing upon you, to obedience, to not conforming, to be holy, and to live as a foreigner. Because I'm going to say to you, if you're on the journey of real life, before we really get into more practicals moving forward, I have to know, and you have to know for yourself, if you're on the journey. Let's pray. Father, as we come into this time of worship, Lord, we, we praise you for your faithfulness, God, that you're good. That when we aren't faithful to you, you're faithful to us. That, God, when we're not hungering after you, you were working to awaken hunger. That when we're not aching after you, God, that you were working to awaken an ache inside of us. Father, I pray today that you would awaken us to our potential. And that being awakened to our potential, that would not, that it wouldn't cause us to freeze because it seems too great. But that God, as we are awakened to this ache and to the fullness of our potential, that it would cause us to be awakened to need and excitement and joy. That like Peter, we say, yes, this is the thing that I've been, oh, aching and longing for. Lord, I pray today for those who have an ache, I pray that you would make the ache stronger and deeper and the discontent more real and palpable. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would come. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to have a time of ministry this morning in time of worship.